Welcome to another podcast edition of the White Collar Crimes Podcast. I am Ryan Horn, the host, and I am so glad you have chosen to be with us and join us again yet another week. Hope you enjoyed last week's episodes, if you caught them, and said episodes with a plural because we had the bonus podcast with uh, Steve Commissar, the legendary con man, which you can also check out the podcast I have with him, the con man and the cop that's on Spotify or wherever you catch your podcast. But we're glad you've tuned in for this one as well as we are every week when you do. And we're glad we can bring this podcast to you every week because of our sponsor, The Weekend Angler. And you can check out his YouTube channel, The Weekend Angler. All kinds of cool fishing tips and advice. And we are very proud to have him as a sponsor of this podcast. Now this episode is going to be one some of you might remember. It's not been terribly awfully long ago. It's also been featured on the very famous TV show American Greed, narrated by Stacy Keach that covers a lot of white-collar crimes, been on for years and years. They did cover this case as well, so in addition to what you learn about this case on this podcast, you should be able to also check it out on American Greed as well. And again, we're just very thankful that you are here on this podcast and this is a name, may not ring a bell, but you may remember the case, a lot of you. This is a man by the name of Solomon Dweck. That is D-W-E-K. And he is an Israeli-American real estate investor, born into a Jewish family in New Jersey, and built a real estate empire around the New Jersey area rather quickly and at a fairly young age. And again, you can probably see what's developing so many times. We've seen that on or heard that on this podcast where somebody starts out really rapidly rises to the top in stock market investing or real estate or something where there's a lot of money to be made, which nothing wrong with that at all if you do it legitimately and legally. But as you're going to hear, that was not the case with him, obviously, or I wouldn't be covering him on the podcast. It'd be a pretty boring story if it's supposed to be related to white-collar crime, and the person I'm talking about doesn't commit any white-collar crimes, but that was certainly the case with Mr. Dweck, but his case does have a little bit of an interesting twist toward the end that a lot of these cases on here we've covered do not, so please stick around for that. As I said, he uh, built a real estate empire rather quickly, and he uh, began to get a pretty good reputation around New Jersey and also in the local Jewish community for being just an outstanding, upstanding businessman and local leader. But as we've also seen and heard many times on this podcast, things are not always as they seem. And that was going to be the case, sadly, with this gentleman as well. And as I said, his case, though, does have a little bit of an interesting turn that and takes up a role, if you will, and that you'll see in a little bit that a lot of these cases, the people that are caught in these white-collar crimes do not oftentimes end up assuming, at least that we, that we know of. Now, he accumulated a lot of properties in that area, so one would think that his bank accounts were probably legit. You know, if you guys have taken buying up a lot of properties, selling them, renting them, however you can make money off of it, you figure anything to do with his banks and banking accounts and things of that nature are probably going to be legit, right? Well, no, that was not the case in this case at all. 
And this so many times we've seen before, after a while, authorities would begin to find things out. And they would also find out on him that bank fraud was among his many shady activities that he was involved in. And we don't have time in this podcast to go into each one. But overall, as you'll see, bank fraud is actually what brought him down into the criminal justice system. But it's likely he was involved in some shady real estate deals and things like that as well. But the main thing that got him on the authority, the radar of the authorities, was bank fraud. In fact, in 2006, he ends up getting arrested by the FBI on an alleged $50 million bank fraud. Now, 2006 wasn't that long ago, so $50 million was quite a bit of money then and even is now. It's, uh, of course, probably $50 million isn't quite as much worth as what it would have been in 2006, but it's not been that long ago where that's still a pretty good chunk of change, as they say. And the FBI at this point, after investigating some of his alleged banking activities, decide he has committed up to about $50 million in various bank frauds, and they take him into custody. Now, three years later, he ends up pleading guilty to the bank fraud charges, and he is released on a $10 million bond, which that's a pretty steep bond. Now, in Illinois, and I won't go into this too much, but uh, the geniuses that run the state here in Illinois have decided to do away with cash bail and that's a whole other argument and it's an insane policy in my opinion somebody that's worked in the criminal justice system for probably over 25 years now I think that's uh, quite insane but nonetheless he got one pretty hefty bond nonetheless but uh, depending on how much of his money and assets that they didn't freeze he might be able to make that most people obviously cannot post that kind of bail However, the brilliant founders of our Constitution and our framers of this country did realize that that could be abused against people, and they did make that an Eighth Amendment protection where you, John Q. Public or Jane Q. Public, you are protected from excessive bail. But in this case, it was deemed to be fitting, and his bail was set at $10 million. Now, this oftentimes would be where the case might wind down and end, but that is not the case here. Now, he was released. He did, I guess, was able to post that $10 million bond, and in most cases, you'd probably see where they'll just come around later, get sentenced, do their time, and that's when we would wrap this episode up, but that's not the case. We're not quite ready to wrap it up yet, and we're going to get to that in just a little bit on how this case took an interesting turn. Because most of the time, this would be where I would be kind of wrapping it up and telling you, you know, the cool things we got going on. And yes, speaking of that, the long-awaited audio book I narrated about legendary Hollywood director Howard Hawks is now available. You can get it on Amazon or Audible or go to the publisher site if you want the CD version. That is on cherryhillspublishing.com. So please check those out. This would be the time I'd do that. Of course, I always like to advocate for supporting your local pet shelter would be doing that and and so forth, but uh, that's not where this story is going to end. And as you'll see, there still was a little bit to be dealt with in this case. So like I said, he's released on a $10 million bond, and normally things would be uh, taking their normal procedure and winding down. But here's the difference in this case. 
Dweck actually became an informant for the FBI. And we've seen over the years that the FBI doesn't obviously usually pick upstanding citizens sometimes to be their, as they call them, CIs, confidential informants. And it's just basically in a roundabout street slang term, a snitch is what a lot of these are. You might recall Whitey Bulger, the famous mobster they found out, uh, got away with a lot of things that he did in the Boston area for a number of years because law enforcement turned the other head because he was providing valuable information because he was an FBI informant and therefore law enforcement backed off and he was allowed to do a massive amount of criminal activities before he was finally brought down. Uh, you can see that story told. It's a Johnny Depp movie called Black Mass. A uh, really good movie. I'd highly recommend that. It's probably about eight, nine years old now. Um, but uh, excellent movie, and it's pretty close to the script. All movies usually do their little creative liberties or don't cover some things that happen in the case. But from what I can see and have read about that case, that movie does a pretty good job accurately portraying that case. But he becomes an FBI informant, just like uh, Whitey Bulger and countless others do. Uh, in a lesser-known case, there's a mobster called Danny Green that was in the Cleveland area back in the 70s, and they found out he managed to avoid a lot of jail and prison time by operating as a confidential informant to the FBI. So it's not that uncommon, but uh, it seems like in these white-collar crime cases it is. That's where this case does have a little bit different of a twist than what the other ones we've covered do because in this case or in most cases on here I haven't had too many that I can say where they became an informant now I'm sure some of them may have worked of one and it just as one and it just didn't become public knowledge or whatnot but this is a case where it actually did become public knowledge that he worked as a confidential informant and as you're going to see in a little bit he must have told him a lot of good valuable information because a lot of people got brought down based on the information that he gave the FBI. In fact, it led to many arrests in what the FBI called Operation Bid Rig, and some of these included local officials. Now, there was massive amounts of corruptions, bribes, kickbacks, scams, uh, charity scams, all kinds of things that he gave information on, and some of these included some elected officials including Jersey City's Deputy Mayor, Leona Beldini, I think I'm pronouncing this right. And this testimony would later lead to her actually being convicted of a couple of federal corruption charges. And, you know, that's certainly not new in New Jersey. If you've ever followed the news, any New Jersey uh, gives Chicago, here in my home state of Illinois, a very good run for public official corruption. I mean, they've had many members of elected officials there, whether it be congressmen, mayors, some governors, whatnot, that have been brought up on all kinds of corruption charges. You've seen that here in the state of Illinois, especially those of you that are listening here in the United States. You know over the last several years we've had, well, in the last 25 years, we've had two governors go to prison. And prior to that, we had some, I think we've had four in about the last 60 years or so that ended up doing time. So, Chicago and New Jersey have a lot in common in that regard, and it would lead to her actually getting convicted of some of these federal corruption charges, the testimony that Dweck provided to the FBI. Now, his undercover work uh, also, because he testified against her, but his undercover work also brought some others down. He also posed as a corrupt real estate developer, helping bring about the deputy mayor, as we just said, and some other elected officials and public officials. 
And this didn't sit real well, though, however, with his family because some of these charity scams and bank frauds and things that and other types of corruption that he testified against, some of these were ultra-Orthodox rabbis in his community that were involved in this and friends with his father, who happened to be a rabbi. And this did not set well with his father, provide, him providing testimony against some of his fellow Jewish member uh, friends and members of the Jewish faith. And this didn't set well. In fact, his father, pretty much from what it was reported, ended up disowning him after this because, again, it led to a lot of rabbis being arrested and you can check this out on the american greed page there where or on the story on this case where a lot of them were taken into custody when they had a big massive kind of like a warrant sweep or raid where they took these rabbis and some of these public officials took them all into custody around the same time and it's a really big deal it's kind of shocking to especially people of the jewish community in New Jersey to find that some of these rabbis were involved in some of these financial scams with Dweck and others. And it was kind of shocking news. And uh, so much that his father didn't appreciate him working as an informant. And, you know, that does come with territory. It comes with the territory sometimes. It's not going to be liked and well-received. Whitey Bulger had it become public knowledge beforehand that he was working as a an FBI informant and snitch certainly would have endangered his life dealing in the mafia and organized crime. That is certainly a uh, position and a characteristic that is not smiled upon in organized crime. And a lot of people just simply do look down on it. His father, who was also a rabbi, looked down upon this as well well, and had later made the statement that Solomon would not be welcome in his home again. It's what was reported, he said. Now, he had worked in also provided uh, information, as we said, some some of the, the rabbis, some of the elected officials, and apparently some of the work he did as an informant also helped bring about some actual members of organized crime, speaking of that, and brought a lot of those to justice. And it would speculate that this was going to have to probably have him placed in the witness protection program because he's testified against a lot of dangerous people. And Public corruption's nothing new. You know, in fact, the other night I, I uh, saw this on a film page I follow on Facebook about the 1990s Sylvester Stallone movie Copland, and I hadn't seen that in ages and went back and visited. I always liked that movie because it deals with police corruption right there in New Jersey and New York, and uh, it's just an area that unfortunately has always suffered from organized crime and public corruption, and was no different at all in this case. That's exactly what was going on, and... Uh, a lot of his testimony did that. Now, who knows, without Dweck's testimony, if a lot of these people would have been brought down. Now, I have no doubt his motives, I'm sure, were to get time off. That is why most people turn evidence against their co-defendants and provide this information and work as CIs and confidential informants. But who knows what would have happened if he didn't. He might have ended up doing even more time, which we'll get to that in just a little bit, how much time he ended up having to do in this case. But... His testimony took down a lot of corrupt people of all walks of life. As I said just a second ago, elected officials, rabbis, organized crime figures, all kinds of people involved in this massive corruption in this area. And his information did help bring a lot of that down. Now, as I said, though, the testimony didn't sit well with his family and it did cause some type of strain. So he would have to probably have to think how life was going to be after he was released from sentencing because remember backing up this a little bit he was out on bail but here's another odd twist in this case that happened 
He didn't last too long out on bail. As I mentioned a little bit ago, released on a $10 million bail. Not a lot of money you want to risk, or not small-time chump change, because most of the time in Illinois and a lot of other states, back when we had cash bail, if you failed to appear enough times or you violated bail conditions enough, eventually they could revoke the bail, and the state ends up keeping it. And that's a lot of money to turn over to the state. Most people didn't put up $10 million, but he did. And... That's what could have been at risk here because he didn't last too long out on this bail. In fact, he was soon arrested for car theft and finally held without bail, being too much considered too much of a risk to the community, probably considered a flight risk since he certainly had the financial means and resources, but they decided to hold him without bail, which I found that kind of odd to be involved in car theft. I'm not sure what kind of car it was, but normally bank fraud and these very wealthy white-collar crime offenders usually don't get involved in something that would be more classified as a street crime. So that was yet another interesting twist in this case. I was really glad to bring this podcast to you because there is really a lot of interesting twists and turns in this case that are not in uh, a lot of the the cases that are out there that deal with white-collar crime. As I said, you don't usually have this many twists and turns. Usually this would have ended half halfway through the episode ago when he got around the time he went to court and got sentenced and that would have been the end maybe a little follow-up upon his release but that's not the case in this one that uh to my knowledge it's the first one i've covered on this podcast where the offender got arrested for basically like i said a second ago a street crime when he got released so again another interesting twist and turn in mr dweck's case So finally in 2012, he was sentenced to six years in federal prison. And about a day later, he received a four-year prison sentence on a separate state fraud case. Now fortunately for him, he was allowed to serve these concurrently. And if you're new to criminal justice or maybe, you know, you're listening from another country, don't understand how that goes, this is when somebody gets two separate cases. Like in this case, one is six years, one is four years. If they run them concurrently, that just means they run at the same time. So after four years, that sentence is over. Then he serves the other two on the federal case, and then he's done. Now, if they were to run consecutively, it would be just the opposite of that. He would have to serve out the six-year federal sentence, and then maybe the four-year one after that, or vice versa. Fortunately for him, he was allowed to serve these concurrently. And he did serve these, I guess probably getting the day-for-day, good time, things like that, maybe credit for the time that he did in jail awaiting trial. He ended up getting released in 2015. So at this point, he's been out of jail probably going on, or out of prison, I should say, going on about nine years now. There hasn't been a lot reported about Mr. Dweck's whereabouts that I could see or anything like that. So I guess that is some good news in a way. It means he hasn't been reoffended or violated his parole or been rearrested or anything among that nature. But uh, who knows? I mean, if we hear of any new developments in his case, as always, we will do follow-ups on it. Um, one case we've followed recently, I don't know if a lot of you saw, but Alex Murdaugh, the attorney in South Carolina, convicted of m- murdering his son and his wife and over a hundred counts of various financial frauds, he was denied a new trial in the murder case. He filed a motion to get a retrial on the murder case, and the judge denied that. So as of right now, his life sentence stands, and he also got, I think, 
27 years or something like that for his financial crime. So guy in his late 50s means most likely he's he's dying in prison. You know, I mean, a life sentence in South Carolina, I think, pretty much means a life sentence. So that's what he's looking at there. So we got the all kinds of cool stuff coming up, as I said, too. Keep in mind that we have the YouTube channel in the works, and we also have a book getting ready to come out very soon and some other developments coming up. Taking a little longer than I thought, but it's always worth the wait. You know, the Howard Hawks book took much longer to get out there than I thought it would, but it's out now. And also, you can also check out In Danger of Judgment on Beacon Audiobooks, one that I recorded a while back. That's out there as well. And if you need voiceover work, please contact me at ryanhornvt at gmail.com. You can also check out my website, ryan-horn.com. See some of the voiceover work that I've done. Be glad to provide that for your business or service or whatever you have. And as I said a second ago, if you want to be on the show or provide an idea, email me at that same address. I had that a while back. I had somebody contact me about last week's episode about Dr. Brian Hyatt, a developing case going on in Arkansas right now. Information provided to me from a listener. Thank you to all the listeners and especially uh, those that just continue to hang with us and help us grow. And I really appreciate when you do interact. And I'd also be glad to have any of you on as a guest. I had Mr. John Tickle, a white-collar crim- uh, an attorney in Texas that defends white-collar criminals. He was a guest a couple weeks ago. So love interacting with you. So please be sure to email me to be a guest or if you have an idea. Follow our Facebook page, the White Collar Crimes Podcast. Help get information on the show. And, you know, follow us on, like us on Spotify, Apple, wherever you're following us. Please give us a good review. That helps us out a lot and it helps us grow and continue to keep this going. And we're going to keep it going another week. So we will see you back next week on Tuesday, folks. God bless. Take care. We will see you then.